0: i Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Book of the Month Club is this week's sponsor. They're offering listeners uh, their first book for only $5 with code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. Again, that's code Zibby for your first book for $5 to Book of the Month Club, which by the way is amazing. I subscribe every month. I get to pick from five of their favorite books. Um, most of the time, one of them is is by an author I've had on my podcast and Then it just arrives. I've given it as a gift. I adore it, and you will too. So think of it for gifts, and um, for sure, go on bookofthemonth.com and subscribe yourself. I'm here today with Catherine Winch, who's the CEO of The Mom Complex, a consulting company that partners with the largest companies in the world to create better products, services, and experiences for mothers. She is a nationally recognized expert on the topic of modern motherhood and the author of Slay Like a Mother, How to Destroy What's Holding You Back So You Can Live the Life You Want. Her research has been featured on The Today Show, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and other media outlets. She's spoken at TEDx and was recently named a woman of the decade by the Women's Economic Forum. She currently lives with her husband and two children in Richmond, Virginia. So welcome, Catherine. Thanks for coming on. Moms don't have time to read books. Yay, thanks for having me. I am so excited. I feel like we have, we could sit here for like hours and discuss. So I'll try <laughs> to be strategic with my questions. Yeah. yeah. So your book, Slay Like a Mother, How to Destroy What's Holding You Back So You Can Live the Life You Want was amazing and I got so much out of it. I continue to get so much out of it. What inspired you to write this book?
1: Well, I was inspired to write the book because for 20 years of my life, I lived with what I refer to as my dragon of self-doubt. And I just never felt good enough from age 15 to 35. I wasn't thin enough, nice enough, tough enough. And in my life, that meant that I was an overachiever and I was just seeking approval and affection from everybody around me because I didn't have it inside of me. And it was really an exhausting way to live. But in my role as CEO of the Mom Complex, I had the opportunity to study women in 17 countries around the world. And I realized that we were all the same, that there was this ferocious beast of self-doubt that was really holding us back and making us feel like crap. And it changed my life knowing that I wasn't alone. And I thought, why are we not talking about this crap? Like it's eating us all alive. And so I went on a two-year self-help journey and I learned how to slay my dragon. And then I wrote this book to help other people do the same. And go
0: back for a second and tell me about the mom complex.
1: Yeah, so I run a company, it's called the Mom Complex, and it's a consulting company, and we work with some of the biggest companies and organizations in the world to better understand mothers, whether that's their mom employees or their mom customers, and then we help them tailor better products and services and support. For mothers. And how do you find all those moms? We have like a database of moms. We call them our Maverick Moms. And if anybody wants to sign up, you can go to the momcomplex.com and we just tap into women all over the world. And you know, we just paint a picture of what life is really like as a mother because a lot of people just don't know if they're not in it. You know, just all the cognitive load that we carry and the stress and the mental anxiety. Yeah, it's a cool job. And we're small and boutique and very specialized. And we work really hard and we do a great job, but we don't sacrifice our sanity. That's amazing.
0: I knew I would love this book when I opened the cover and you have all these cute little quotes. And the one I love the most, it's time to shift from warrior to warrior, which is great. And then you explain later that your husband actually said that to you at one point, taking yeah. you by the shoulders and like yeah, <laughs> trying yeah, to get yeah. it through your head. Yeah. And the opening paragraph of your book, you wrote, Are you tired of working your ass off and still feeling like you should be doing more? Do other mothers seem to glide through life on ice skates while you tuck your muffin top into your pants and pray you'll make it through Tuesday without losing your ever-loving mind? If so, you picked up the right book. I was like, ah, I cannot (laughs) wait to get into (laughs) this. (laughs) So tell
1: me more about this warrior-to-warrior shift. Yeah. So yeah, most of us spend our life just worrying of this, like, doomsday future. You know, if our child fails the science test, they're going to be in jail by the time they're 15. You know, this fast-forwarding. And we live in so much fear and worry that Things are going to go wrong, and most of the time they don't. You know, we're better at this than we give ourselves (laughs) credit for. But at the end of the day, so much of the book is about the difference between struggling and suffering. And struggling is brought on by the external forces in our life. So we have multiple kids. We have to get them fed. We have to get them new clothes for fall because none of them fit. Whatever it is, just the struggles. But we dip down into suffering when we assume we're the only people that are struggling. And so we think everybody else is perfect, and they're, again— like skating around on ice skates. And we're suffering because we think we're alone and we're knuckleheads and we suck and everybody else is perfect. But at the end of the day, we control the suffering. And if we just beat ourselves up less and give ourselves some grace, you know, for going through hard times, then the goal is just to struggle. And so if you're struggling, you're winning. And that's the human existence. And you can't buy your way out of it, move your way out of it, grow your way. Like you're stuck with struggling. But we can suffer a lot less, and the men suffer less than we do in general. So you give so many tips for basically how to
0: calm these voices in our heads after making people feel not alone by acknowledging that so many of us share these the same sort of negative self-talk. One of the things that I found most helpful in the book was when you have—there are, like, lines that you leave open in the book for people to write in that say— What's your negative self-talk like? How would you punish yourself? But then, what would you say to a friend who did the same thing? Like, I went to a birthday party on the wrong day. What would you say to yourself? I'd say like, Oh my gosh, I'm such a moron! I cannot believe I did that! I can't keep my life together! I am terrible! I am not going to be a good mother. And what would you say to a friend? You would say like, oh my gosh, don't worry. I've done that too. Like it's it happens. There's so much to manage. Yeah. So yeah. tell me about putting that in as a, as a tool.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I've studied negative self-talk both in women and men. And I'm generalizing here. But for the most part, when men share the last terrible thing they said to themselves, it's critical You know, like you miss the gym, do better next time. But for women, it's often cruel. And it's you're fat, you're ugly, it's a miracle your husband loves you. I mean, it's really dark. I want to do like an art exhibit at some point of like all these negative thoughts that are so real and living inside of beautiful, accomplished women. You know, it's just heart-wrenching. But you can teach the voice in your head some manners. It's not going to completely go away. We all have negative self-talk for a reason, but... You can really, you know, reframe it like a friend. And I'll give you an example. So I was giving a speech the other day and I was showing a video and I happened to be in the video and my face came up and it was huge on the screen. And then my first thought was like, oh, my gosh, you look awful. I mean, it was just not my best moment. But first of all, I heard the voice. You know, which is literally half the battle. Like, I recognized that I was saying that because old habits die hard. And then I said, you know what, Catherine, it's not your best moment. Like, you don't look great in that video, but some days you do, you know. And then you felt better. Yeah. It's like we have to remember that we do have good days. I mean, yeah, that was not a good moment, but I do have good moments, and I do make good decisions, and, you know, so we have to remember the good times, too, and it'll help lessen the bad
0: And you showed me, not showed me, but you have this video in which you interviewed a lot of women on the mean things they say to themselves. And it's beautiful the way you did it. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. I'll have to link to it with this episode. But yeah. women are just saying like, "I have the worst style, and I'm so fat. My kids are gonna, you know, get a bad role model for me." And I'm just like negative thing after negative thing. And I'm looking at these women, and of course thinking, "Well, no, she's not." And right. what is she talking about? She's beautiful, and and of course, and then you have them paired with other women, and when they get together, they can say those positive things, like, no, no. you know. So talk to me about that video and what made you do it and how can we get that to happen all yeah. the time, yeah. honestly, not yeah. just in like a three-minute
1: yeah. video. But. Yeah. Well, it was an exercise that I was doing in my workshops. I do workshops with women all over the world and get women together. And that was something where I asked women to write down, what's the last terrible thing that you said to yourself? Because I want people to see it in their own handwriting. And I always say, at some point, this stuff has to get from outside of you, you know. It's like we have to extract it. So it was just an exercise, but then I thought they're so terrible. I mean, they were just so dark that it would be neat to do a video and to not tell the women what the video was about. So I just recruited them for a video for the mom complex about being a mother. They had no idea that... And I remember a lot of men that were on the set, they were like, well, how do you know that these women are going to show up and say terrible things? Because they were just randomly recruited, you know, for this. And I was like, oh, just wait, (laughs) you know, because they were like, this is going to be a bust and you're paying money. And they were concerned for me, you know. And then afterwards, this guy, who's was probably in his 20s, he was, you know, holding the boom mic during the, the video. And he came over to me and he said, the world really needs this book. And I had no idea. And, you know, I've had other men watch it and say that, you know, wow, if I knew how hard my mom was on herself, I would have been a better son. I mean, you know, just really moving People, and you know, most of the men in our lives don't know that we speak to ourselves this way. You know, it's pretty hidden. And so I just want to expose it. And then I think the more we can be honest and share and open up about the things that we're having a hard time with, you know, it releases the power over you when you can
0: talk about it. I feel like it's like one of those magic decoder things that the kids have where they yes. write in secret ink and then you yes. have to get the right lens to see yes. it through and all of a sudden. All I feel like all of it, like your book is yeah. like the lens where, Aww. like, you can suddenly yes. see all this stuff inside nice. everyone. so
1: Yeah, people uh, have said that. They've said that there are things that have been articulated in a way that they hadn't thought of before. They feel seen for the first time. And I remember feeling that way. And sometimes people say, you have no idea, you know, how impactful your book is. And I'm like, but I do know because I was so broken for so long. And I remember reading books and being like oh, she did it. I can do it. She's going to show me how, you know, like I remember the relief Mm -hmm. of feeling like I could get out of it, you know, like it was empowering.
0: And you talk in your book about how bad it is that moms in particular compare themselves to others. I actually did my senior thesis on social comparison theory, so Mm -hmm. I'm very well Mm -hmm. acquainted Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. it. But how... Detrimental it is for all of us when we're constantly comparing ourselves. And then, as we just sat down oh, yeah. to do this interview, <laughs> um, I gave Catherine my mom's <laughs> don't have time to read tote bag. So cute. Thank you. But then she gave me this like amazing <laughs> cooler bag with oh. t shirts and books and wine and everything. And I was like, oh my gosh, I feel terrible. All I gave you was a tote bag. And she was like, don't compare. Right. <laughs> don't it, don't immediately compare I gifts. felt terrible. I know. know. And anyway,
1: silly. So tell me, why is this so bad? Well, it's bad because we make assumptions about other women. So you see one woman do something well, you know, she hosts a dinner party and she just kills it. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh my gosh, I bet she got straight A's in high school. She never yells at her children. She, you know, feels no pain when she steps on Legos. I mean, we just... Make these, like, sweeping assumptions about other people, and and it's just not true. And then we try to live up to that, and it's like we want to be the Uber mom. We want to be, like, clean like Karen and nice like Becky and smart like you know, somebody else. And we want to, you know, have this superpower. But, you know, the the litmus test I often ask people is think how much we put into birthday parties for our children. I mean, it's it's a little over the top. We're very often doing it for ourselves, make ourselves feel like a good mother. Like So I often ask people and I'll ask you, like, what's the first birthday party that you remember as a child that you were like yours, not from photos, but you remember being at? I
0: remember being at. My fourth birthday party, and we had it was like in our backyard. We had a okay. guitar player guy. Okay. We had like a little hayride. But I really remember because I used to be really shy, and when the cake came out, I was hysterically crying because I didn't want all the attention, and I like went and hid. Oh. Anyway, okay. <laughs> maybe I remember that feeling, yeah. of just yeah. like that yeah. feeling of mortification. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but sorry, mom, I know yeah. I she she did so <laughs> many, and the cake was beautiful. It yeah, like spelled Zibby, and like oh. in like actual cake, and those oh. letters, and and yet. I was too, like, overwhelmed. Yeah. To, but anyway, it's yeah, yeah. probably not the answer yeah, you were looking yeah. for. So well, that's my first the, one you're I remember. you're on the young
1: side. Most people, it's like seven, eight, or mo- some people are, like, in their teens. But as mothers, we kill ourselves over these birthday parties. But they, the child doesn't even remember until, you know, most of the time they're, like, six, eight, ten years old. You know, and so we're just trying to— you know, one-up other people to feel better about ourselves. But if we actually just talk to other people about their challenges, you know, just asking a girlfriend, like, what are you struggling with these days? We can get other people to open it up, and then we'll see that we're all struggling. Like,
0: nobody's free from it. I feel like I've learned a lot from my older kids to my younger kids with the birthday party thing. (laughs) Yes, Because Mm -hmm. with my older kids— I wanted everything to be perfect and like printed invitations and like invited, like it was like a whole yeah. thing. And I literally just like planned my fourth child's birthday party. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> like, yeah, 15 yeah. 15 minutes I like called <laughs> yeah. the one gym, I sent yeah, the paperless
1: post and done. I'm like, okay,
0: 15 minutes done
1: and I'm yeah, just going to show up and you know what, it's Well, now be you fine. know what matters. I mean, you know yeah. that it's the fun there that.
0: You know, it's funny, I interviewed, oh my gosh, who was it? She had a whole theory of min, max, min and time management and I'm Mm. blanking on her name. I f- anyway, I'll look it up. But it was sort of like what's the minimum you can do for this task? What's the maximum? Oh
1: yeah. And okay, that's
0: good. mod mod max man or something. Anyway, okay. And like what do you like basically you can you can go all out for birthday parties. Yeah. You yeah. can do nothing yes. and make one phone call. Where do you want to be yeah, on this yeah, task? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and love then that. do that. Yes. But like don't get carried away.
1: Yeah. Okay, so I have a thought about that I've been talking about a lot lately, which is you have to choose which battles to lose. Mm -hmm. Like, what are you going to lose at? Because you can't win at everything. And if we treat everything as though it's the same priority, you know, we're just going to die trying. And the truth is not everything's created equal. So I'll give you an example. We have two kids. They're in two different schools. And so my husband is more involved at in my son's school. I'm more involved in my daughter's school. And so when I go into my son's school, I feel like that dragon of self-doubt come back. Like, I don't know the moms. Yeah. I don't know that yeah. many of the teachers. And it's like, ugh, you're such a bad mom. And then I say, nope you know what, this is what I chose. I chose to lose this. Like, this was a decision, and this is what losing feels like. Of course I'm uncomfortable. I'm not here that often, you know. And it, like, releases all of that pressure to then be like, oh, I have to volunteer more, you know, and, like, go back on my word. I said that I'm willing to lose the battle of looking like a great mom at my son's school, you know. I'm a, I'm, and, and guess what? We, they have two parents that love them both, and they're both getting lots of, you know, so, like, nobody's missing out. This is a very fortunate challenge.
0: I think that the pressure to be everywhere within the schools, I don't know yeah. how demanding— yeah. I mean, my kids are in four different schools this year, and I can't. I just can't yeah. be at all those places. Right. And I'm like, you know what? The schools are trying to help the parents too. Yeah. Want them, you know, for parents who want to be involved, it's a great thing. Absolutely. But if that's yeah, that shouldn't make you feel terrible for missing right, every right. coffee. They're doing a coffee as yeah, a service, yes. so I try to yes. sometimes reframe it like, yeah,
1: that's they're a trying, point.
0: they're trying to cater to the parents, and yeah, you know, this is perfect for some parents, and yeah, maybe this level of and involvement be is not perfect yeah. for me. Yeah. But yeah. just because it's offered doesn't mean
1: yeah, that you I have, have to do to everything. Have, right. And I don't
0: have to like you've made a decision not to feel like a bad parent. Well. Maybe that doesn't make you look like a bad parent.
1: Exactly. Well, I know. It goes back to the whole fear, and, like, yeah. it's not even real. Right. I mean, it's just, like, people don't think about you as much as you think they think about you. You know, people yeah. don't really oh, care. Oh, for sure. I mean, we think they care a lot, but.
0: Another tip in your book is is being able to say no, which I feel like is relating to what we're talking about. Do you have tips on, like, how to say no to certain things so you don't overcommit? I have
1: so many tips. That's great. <laughs> I know um, you do from the book, but. <laughs> no, it just because it, I love this one because it's really important. So this is something that I learned through being a working mother, but you don't have to be working to for to relate to it. So when I went back to work in the advertising industry after I had my first child, I had a great mentor and boss, and he said, you know, what do you want to protect? Like, what kind of what boundaries do you want to draw? And I was like, I want to be at home for dinner. Like, I thought for some reason you eat dinner with babies, which, you know, you don't, but I didn't know that, but I felt like it was the right answer. So that's what I said. And he said, okay, Catherine, I want you to think of your job like a teenager teenage boy trying to make out with you and I was like okay and he said your job's job is to take everything you will give it and still want more and so your job is to draw a boundary your line in the sand about what you are and are not willing to do with this teenage boy before the heat of the moment so that you don't cave and do something that you said you wouldn't want to do So, for example, saying in one fell swoop. By the way, no woman I think would come up with that analogy. Right. But anyway, go on. But it was. But I can't. Yeah, it was like it was so. I learned to say no, A, because I just picture people asking me things I don't want to do, like a teenage boy making out with me. And maybe it's because I made out with too many teenage boys. But I'm like, oh, no, I'm not going to do that. But it was about drawing boundaries in bulk. Like, I'm going to tell you that I'm not going to do this. You know, I'm going to leave at six and do that. So that you're not trying to muster up that courage every day. And then when someone's like, no, we need you to be on this conference call, and it's on the West Coast, and it won't be the same without you. And then you're like, you cave, and you're like, okay, I'll make out with you. And you said you weren't going to, you know. So anyway, that really helped me of just, you know, people want things from you, not in a bad way. But guess what? The the school fair is still going to go on Mm -hmm. if you say no. Like it's going to and then it's almost like practice makes perfect because the more you say no, the more you realize that the job still gets done. Everybody stays alive, you know, and you carve out a little bit of time. But my biggest tip is to put yourself on your calendar in the future. So your calendar tomorrow is probably really full. And to take a lot of time for yourself tomorrow would be unrealistic. But six weeks from now, your calendar is not full. And it has some stuff on it, but it's not full. And so put yourself on reoccurring meetings as maybe it's like yoga or meditation or walking around the block or wine with girlfriends. It doesn't have to be healthy. But it's a reoccurring meeting, you know, every Tuesday Mm -hmm. morning, every lunchtime, whatever. And so then all the other, when the future becomes the present, those will be there. But then everything else will still fit. But you'll have yourself on your calendar first. Oh,
0: I like that. But I'm thinking, like, when could I put that in?
1: (laughs) And so you, you do, like, do two or three things a week to start. And what I do is I color code it purple. And I call it my mojo color. And so then it's like at a quick glance, like if I were to look at my calendar next week, if there's not enough purple on it, it means I'm slipping back into my old ways. And my old ways were that the belief that other people deserved my time more than I did. And that I would give it all away. I mean, that's, so if it's not enough purple there, it's like I have to fix that. And it's an immediate, like, kind of recognition for me to know. And there's something different, too, about deleting yourself from your calendar as opposed to trying to put it there. Like, you're saying that you're a priority and try not to move it, you know? Interesting. Get some purple in. Get some purple in. Yeah. And then again, it's all, like, all of this is the tips and tricks and the teenage boys and stuff. Like, they're little hacks. But at the end of the day, you have to love yourself in order to spend time with yourself. Like, to make yourself a priority. So you have to fix the root cause, you know. And then how do you fix the guilt? Like, how do
0: you fix guilt that we have about so many things? Like, mom's working and feeling guilty. Mom's not working and feeling guilty. Like, every—, every Feels guilty about something. How can we release
1: ourselves from the perpetual state of guilt? I think a lot of the guilt comes when we spend time on ourselves when we don't think we're worthy of spending time on ourselves. So there's guilt that we're not doing things for other people is usually where the guilt comes down to. And heaven forbid we insert ourselves, you know, into that pie. So I think that's where the guilt comes from. But when you do learn to love yourself and value your time with self and personal development and and all of those things that I now feel so much less guilt because I believe I'm an important piece of the pie, you know, that there's only so many hours of the day and I would like to have some of them, you know, for me. And I have more energy because of it. Like, I actually feel like I have more to give away because I'm happier and more fulfilled and not so depleted. So I think the the guilt kind of naturally dissipates when you believe that you kind of, you know, have a seat at that. Timetable.
0: And what about this whole concept of wearing the mask of motherhood that you talk about and you've talked about it on like the Today Show and all these yeah. you publicly talk about it a lot. How do we
1: get rid of it. What is it? Yeah, the mask is the, you know, just always walking around like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I don't need any help. Everything's great. And what I always say about the mask is that other people might not know you're wearing a mask, but you know you're wearing a mask. And every time you lie and you say you're fine when you're not, you're basically telling your soul that that other person's opinion of you matters more than the truth. That's what like your soul hears it when you lie. And so I wore a mask for 20 years and I fooled a lot of people and everybody thought I was very happy because I was successful. And, you know, I matched the image in their mind, but I was very hollow and empty on the inside. And, you know, eventually you have to take that mask off because you can't really truly feel loved. Like, Showing who you really are and then feeling loved is a totally different, you know, ball game. That I had a lot of people cheering me on and saying they loved me, but I could never really feel it because I didn't believe it. And, you know, it takes work, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not going to happen from reading one book. This would be a, a great jump start for anybody, you know, on that journey. But You know, I highly recommend therapy and I had a life coach for a long time, which was even more actionable than therapy. And I really believe in talking about this stuff out loud and admitting it and it'll start to dissipate. So what else can we do like on a large scale to
0: get this? So, I mean, I do feel that there has been a shift towards being open about our feelings and, you know, authenticity and, you know, I'm very open when I have, like, big mom fails and all this stuff. But, like, how can—is there anything on a societal level that we can do— Like aside from just trying to reach moms over and over.
1: Right. Yeah. I think, you know, on the uh, we're doing some work through the mom complex, like on the corporate side of life where we're going inside of companies and helping their working moms through some of these lessons that some might brush off as like personal development. But it's really professional development in the sense that and I'll tell you a funny story about this. But for many women, we have to get these cobwebs out. You know, we Mm -hmm. have to learn to believe in ourselves. And I'll give you an example. So I was giving a speech recently and I asked everyone in the audience to think of the last terrible thing they said to themselves after they saw the video that you saw And there happened to be a husband and wife in the front row, and the the wife was like, oh, my— god!" So then I said, sorry, now share it with the person next to you. And the wife is like, oh, my gosh, mine are so horrible. You know, which one am I going to pick? I don't want my husband to know that I have all these horrible things that I say about myself. So she stalls, and she's like, you go first. So he goes, I just—I can't think of anything. I can't think of the last terrible thing that I said to myself. And this woman posted on Instagram and she said, "Ladies," like all caps. She was like, "This is why men rule the world." Can you imagine what you could do and who you could be as a woman if you didn't you couldn't think of the last terrible thing you said to yourself. So, I think that's like the next frontier is corporations figuring out that women have this inside of them and if they can help alleviate it, then we'll have more to give at home, more to give, you know, in the
0: world. Wow. So tell me a little more about the writing of this book. When did you write this <clears throat> book? When did you find time to write this book? How did you prioritize it? Was Did this count as a purple
1: entry in your calendar or was this uh, like a green? that's a question. Yeah. I mean, I definitely would consider it purple because it was so personal and amazing. But for me, it was much harder to get the book deal than it was to write the book, so for me, I had a book proposal for so for nonfiction and it was rejected for four years by twenty three publishers no way. and it got better over time I mean thank goodness i 'm glad the earlier versions didn 't sell, but a lot of rejection, but I just refused to give up, and I knew that these tools and tips and tricks would really save people. A lot of heartache, so I just kept going and kept going. So I finally got the deal in July of 2017, and I wrote it in seven months, but it was... Nine hours a day, five days a week for seven months. And so what I did was I worked one day a week for my company. I wrote five days a week, and then I just took one day as, like, pure family day. And that's what the edit had a wonderful editor, and that's what she said, because it was 75,000 words, and, like, you know, get it— and that was all the edits done, too, in that time period. And so I was so glad she told me that, like, pace. Because I would have been like, oh, I have, you know, seven or eight months. And I probably would have started a lot slower. But this time I was like, oh, shit. (laughs) You know, like, this is serious. But I was very blessed in that I have a wonderful team at work at the Mom Complex. And my business partner, Lauren, was like— I will run this company, we will do a great job, don't answer emails, you know, we the one day a week we'll book your whole calendar and you can help, but we're not going to bug you outside of that. And I have an amazingly supportive husband and he was like, you got one shot, you know, to write your first book and this is it. And I had wanted it so long and i had been rejected for so long, so I think people were so happy to help because... There was so long that we just thought it wouldn't happen. Wow. Yeah, so I was freed up, but it was, I loved it. I loved writing it. I cried every day. Like, I just, for my own story and, like, getting it on paper, but also, like, I knew that it would help people. I just knew the relief that came from what I was writing about for me, For me, and to do that, like, on a big scale was just crazy to me. Like, crazy. I'm so glad you didn't give up. Yeah.
0: It's, yeah. I'm, sometimes I'm like, people come in and I'm like, why would that book be rejected? Why? I mean, it's super helpful. Well, anyway, I don't know. I'm not a publisher, but yeah. I don't they know. Get that make they any sense get a lot, I think. I yeah, that's, know. yeah, I guess so. So, what is coming next for you now? What do you want to do
1: next? Tell me your plan. I'm not itching to write a second book. Most people ask that. But I love this book, and this is the message that I want to share. And I want it to change millions of people's lives. And I want to do the work for that, you know, first, because I do think it's a foundation. I think eventually I'd love to write about, like, daughters fighting dragons and this, you know, self-doubt and everything that lives inside of young girls could be pretty interesting. But until then, I just want to get the word out. And I really love to do and want to spread the word about doing speaking engagements and workshops with women. I do them for nonprofits. I'm speaking tomorrow for an organization called Girls on the Run and about teenage girls. And yeah, I love being in person with people. And I think it's a great message. And I just want to do more of it. That's awesome.
0: Thank you for crusading on behalf of all moms. Yes. Really. Yeah. Do you have any parting advice to
1: aspiring authors? I would say find an insider that can really help you navigate the way, and and I did that for this process. I worked with a woman. Christina Grish, who was, had written several books and she was an editor herself, but she just helped me navigate, you know, that it's her proposal. It's not the full thing. And you got to write it in this tone and they want to hear that, you know? And so I was doing a lot of the legwork of the writing, but she was just helping frame everything for me. And like, don't expect an agent to call you back and reach out to 50 of them to find one. I mean, You need—and there's plenty of people out there, and and I love helping people, too. I'm like, let me tell you what not to do. Because as a first-time author, it's extraordinarily hard to get a deal. But it can be done. I mean, I didn't have any credentials, you know, to be an author, and I figured it out. But find somebody—find a guide. Okay, well, now everyone's going to call you. (laughs) (laughs) I won't give yourself on yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> right, right.
0: Well, thank you. Thanks for coming on Moms No not Time to Read Books. Thank you for sharing all your advice. I really hope your message gets across. I hope everybody reads this and really internalizes it because it's super helpful so we can all just slay our dragons collectively. Yay. So yeah. thank you.
1: Thanks. <laughs> Thanks
0: for having me. This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club, bookofthemonth.com. Enter code Zibby to get your first book for $5. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.